Welcome. Thank you for listening to Clear Bible, Ministry of Life Together Churches, New Joy Fellowship, and me, Tom Hilpert. We're very glad you're listening. Today we're in the book of 1 Samuel, and this is 1 Samuel number 18. This is part 18 in our series on 1 Samuel, and we are in 1 Samuel chapter 17, which happens to be one of the best-known stories in the Bible. So let's pray before we get into it. Holy Spirit, thank you for this amazing story that you gave us, the story of David and Goliath. Help us to not just hear what we've always heard, but help us to hear what you're saying to us right now today through your scripture. Use me however you want to use me to uh, to help us understand and contextualize this scripture. But we we need to hear from you, not from me. So I pray that you would speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a very long chapter. It's 57 verses, and I I don't want to read it all. So I'm going to sort of do a thing where I'll I'll summarize, and then I'll read some verses directly, and then I'll summarize again. And I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. First, with a summary, the Philistines camped. They came up with an army and they camped uh, on one side of a certain valley. The Israelites came up and camped on the other side of the valley. And there was, uh, you know, they were basically the valley between them. And then picking up at uh, 1 Samuel 17, verse 4, Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistines' ranks. He came out of the Philistine ranks, sorry, to to the forces of Israel. Let me start again. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet. His bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him, carrying a shield. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? He called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. I'm going to summarize again. Apparently, when this, basically, this season of war started, when the Philistines started coming to make war, apparently, Saul dismissed David, and David went back to his father's house and back to watching the sheep. That's probably the best way to, I'll I'll talk about this a little bit more, but that's probably the best way to read this, that uh, David went back there, and then uh, David's three oldest brothers actually went to the war. And so his dad said, hey, would you go check up on your brothers? Here's some supplies for them, and here's a little gift for their commander. Uh, Why don't you go up there and see how they're doing, and then come back and tell me. So David showed up. Now, in the meantime, for 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion was strutting around in front of the Israelite army, issuing his challenge. And so David went up, and he left the sheep with a different, uh, probably a hired man, and went with the the food and stuff for his brother and the and the gift for their commander, and I will pick up here in verse 
21. Soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant? The men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who will kill him. He'll give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempt from paying taxes. Now I'm going to summarize again. So David began saying, what's going on here? What's, what is this deal? And, and they told him about Goliath, and they told him about the reward for killing him. And then one of David's brothers heard David asking and kind of mocked him and said, you think you're so great. You know, you just came here to, to see if you could see, the, see a battle. You know, you think just because you were serving with Saul before that you belong here. And, you know, that's kind of the way brothers are. And David more or less ignored him. But he kept asking about the reward and kept asking about the giant enough so that somebody sent him to King Saul. And then picking up in verse 32, don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said, and may the Lord be with you. And then I'll summarize again. Saul said, okay, I'll, I'll let David go because he's, he's only, I'm, I mean, you can, I, I don't want to put words in Saul's mouth, but I wonder if he's sort of thinking he's just a kid. It doesn't really count, you know, if he loses and so, but he tried to give him his armor, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. David said, no, I can't, I can't fight in your armor. And instead, he went out with just his sling and a staff and a shepherd's bag. Now reading at verse 41, Goliath walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, Goliath yelled. David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head and I'll give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel and everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. But it is not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to the attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag, taking out a stone, he hurled it with his sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank in, and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath. He used it to kill him and cut off its head. And then summarizing the rest, um, the battle was joined. The Philistines were obviously horribly dismayed and they, uh, they ran away and 
the Israelites went after them. And at the very end, you have a little weird deal where Saul turns to the commander of his army and says, whose son is this young man or whose father, uh, who's the father of this young man? And Abner, who's the commander of the army, said, I don't know. And we'll, we'll talk about that as well. So let's, let's start, first of all, with some issues that sometimes come up with this text. It's a pretty familiar incident, but there are, um, there are things that people, sort of historical questions that, that come up. If you look at the internet, you, will, you don't have to go very far to find people claiming, no, Goliath was not a giant who was nine feet tall. He was actually only six feet tall, which would have been really tall for that day and age because most of the men were around five foot three or four or something like that. So a six foot man would have been really, really tall. He would have been a giant to them but not to us. He's just, you know, six, six and a half feet, something like that. And the, the place they get this, there are, there are three sources. One is the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Basically, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and then about 200 years before Jesus, they translated it into Greek. And that Greek version of the Old Testament has Goliath's height at around six feet, not around nine. And then you also have the historian Josephus. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a very uh, influential, well-known historian in the first century, a uh, little after the time of Jesus, Jewish and Roman guy. Uh, he also says Goliath was about six feet. And then some of the Dead Sea Scrolls contain scrolls that, um, that indicate that Goliath was only six feet tall. However, I think it all boils back down to the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. I think it was probably a, a scribal error, a mistranslation. Josephus almost certainly got his information from that. So it's not that Josephus had some information that we didn't have. What he, he actually had did not have the information that we have because he didn't have the Hebrew copy of the Old Testament. So of course Josephus would have thought Goliath was six feet because that's what the Greek Old Testament said. And I think that's probably true of the Dead Sea Scrolls as well. It was probably also based on the Greek version of the Old Testament. However, in, in spite of this, you know, that there are these sources that say it's six feet, I, I think they're wrong. I think it's unlikely. Again, I think it's a translation or copying error when they made the Septuagint. And this is why. In addition to Goliath's height, we have the weight of some of the armor that he carried. And the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, agrees with the weight of his weapons and armor. And so his, his coat of mail, uh, that's kind of a, a kind of linked links that, that sort of create an armor over you, and his was made of bronze, that mail coat weighed 125 pounds. Now, a man who's six foot tall, even six five, does not need a coat that weighs 125 pounds. That's a lot of weight to try and carry into battle. And it makes a lot of sense if the guy is nine feet tall, A, he would be strong enough to carry it, B, it would be big enough to cover him. But if, if you're only six foot, even six foot five, uh, you don't need a male coat that weighs 125 pounds, and in fact, it would be a hindrance to you. Uh, we also have the, the, the thing about his spear, that it's as big as a weaver's rod, um, say, you know, maybe four inch diameter, think of a four by four, and just, you know, trim, round off the, the edges of a four by four. That's what you got there. And then a 15 pound iron spearhead. That is not going to be easy, even for a guy who's six foot five, 
it's not going to be easy to use a spear that big and heavy. I don't know if you've thought about it, but of course, the end of the spear is 15 pounds. That would make it very hard just to hold up because it's at the end of the pole that you've got. And so even a guy six foot five, it's going to be, I'm sure he can use it, but it's going to be a pretty unwieldy weapon for somebody that size. But if you're nine feet tall, it's just right. Fits you perfectly. And so all of these things add up to, I would guess that all of these things put together, his weapons and, and armor and everything probably weighed around 200 pounds. Now, a guy who's six foot five, especially in the ancient world, is not going to be much more than 250 pounds. Uh, in other words, the armor weighs almost as much as he does. A guy who's nine feet tall, whole different story. So I, I really think the best way to read it is that he was nine feet tall. And then there's the other thing I, I referenced just at the very end of the text. You have Saul asking his military commander about David, whose son is this youth? And the question is strange because we, we should know that, <laughs> you know, Saul should know David, right? David was brought to court to play the, the lyre or the harp and, and sing for Saul. And the text even says that Saul loved him at that point in time. And when they were finding David, when they were trying to find somebody to play the music for Saul, one of the courtiers volunteered. He said, hey, I know a guy named Jesse and his son is a good musician. So Saul has heard the name of David's father. However, it might be, there, there are several reasons. By the way, this is one of those things that people call a contradiction in the Bible. And that's why I want to talk about it. They say, see, here David's already come into play. You know, he's been at the court. Saul should know him. And then here Saul doesn't know him. So that shows that the Bible is all made up. It's a contradiction. It's, it's all just a, a, a big mess. But it does not have to contradict itself. And even if you say, okay, it's a contradiction, it doesn't mean anything theologically. There's no, there's no spiritual significance to the contradiction of Saul, A, knowing who David's father was before, and then B, not knowing later on. If you want to call that a contradiction, you can, but again, it has no significance. But I don't think it has to be a contradiction at all. Some scholars would say that uh, chapter 16 came from a different source than chapter 17, and the source for chapter 17 was unaware of the account of how David came to court as a singer in chapter 16. And we do know, actually, that the author of 1 Samuel drew on three different sources. In 1 Chronicles, it says there are three different sources for the life of David. Now, the acts of King David from first to last are written in the Chronicles of Samuel the seer, and in the Chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in the Chronicles of Gad the seer, with the accounts of all his rule and his might, and of the circumstances that came upon him and upon Israel and upon all the kingdoms and countries. That's from 1 Chronicles 29, verses 29 and 30. So that basically tells us the source of the book of 1 Samuel. Somebody used those three sources and put it together. So the problem is if you say, well, you know, this source knew about David becoming a singer and this source didn't, the guy who put it together obviously had access to both sources, and he apparently did not see it as a contradiction. He, he put both of them side by side. He knew, here's one that says this, here's one that says that, and for him, there, he doesn't comment on it. So apparently, there's a way to read this that would not contradict itself. So there's no necessary contradiction, and I want to give you a couple possible explanations. At the end of chapter 16, we learn that Saul is troubled by a, a tormenting spirit, 
And the manifestation of this was apparently some kind of mental illness, depression and fear and so on. And in fact, as we go on through the book of 1 Samuel, you see that Saul kind of exhibits some classic symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia. So Saul's question may be the result of the fact that he is sometimes very confused. And for that moment, he was, oh, he just kind of lost track of who David was. So that, that could be one possible explanation. Notice also that verse 15 told us that David was now going back and forth between his home where he tended the sheep and the place where Saul's army was encamped. In other words, it does sound like what I said before. David got sent home when the army went out to take the field. And so he hasn't been back with Saul for a little while. His status has changed. He's not with Saul all the time. He's back at home at least part of the time. Also, when David comes to Saul, we heard that Goliath stood in front of the army and issued his challenge for 40 days, 40 days in a row. And yet when David shows up, that's the first he's heard it. So David's been gone for more than a month. He's been gone for six weeks from Saul. Um, and it's possible that he was gone even longer than that. It doesn't tell us how long it was between, you know, it doesn't tell us about him leaving and then, you know, Saul going to war and all that. We, we sort of have to infer those details, but there obviously that is what happened. And so it could have been even a few months since David and Saul have seen one another. And remember, David's a teenager. And if you've ever, you know, seen a 13, 14-year-old boy and then not seen him again for three or four months and you run into him a second time, he may have grown six inches. <laughs> you know, this is the time of life where people change considerably. And so that alone could account for Saul's confusion. On the other hand, there isn't any necessary confusion at all. Remember, Saul promised a reward to the person who killed Goliath. He said the person who did it would be married to one of his daughters. And he also said the whole family of the victor would be exempt from taxes. And in order to keep those promises, he needed to officially verify the identity of David's father, since the father was the key figure in both taxes and in marriage arrangements. Remember, Saul doesn't ask, who is that young man? He's not asking who David is. He's saying, who's his father? I need to get with his father to, to plan out the marriage and the tax thing. So I don't think there's a, a, a real contradiction there. There's several possible reasonable explanations. And again, I think the person who put this together obviously didn't see anything there that he needed to comment on or straighten up. And, it, and even if there was a contradiction, it wouldn't mean anything to the Christian faith. So set that aside now. Let's turn to the story. The tribes of Israel faced with a giant. Um, but remember, they had a pretty big guy themselves. Goliath was about nine feet tall. Saul was maybe six, six and a half feet tall. And Goliath actually was probably closer to nine and six. He's nine and a half feet tall. But Saul had a guy who was bigger than anybody else. He was the biggest human being in Israel. And uh, Goliath obviously was the biggest human being in the whole region. But there was kind of a match there where it's like, okay, we've got Saul. He's a real big guy. But Saul did not answer the challenge. He should have been the natural choice. But by this point, he had rejected his role as God's chosen instrument. And everybody else was looking at this situation saying, this guy is way bigger than every single one of us. He's even way bigger than our biggest guy. And he's equipped with this huge amount of armor and weaponry. It's like fighting an armed, intelligent grizzly bear. And so when David came along, 
to send a boy with a sling against a giant with armor was crazy. The odds were totally in favor of the giant. But David saw it primarily as a spiritual battle. What it looked like on the outside made no difference to him. In In David's eyes, Goliath was not challenging him. He wasn't challenging the army of Israel. He was challenging God. And so he said, when he first saw it, he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is shocked. Why is everybody so afraid of him? We've got God. And you can almost picture the men around David kind of staring at him and then staring at each other and sort of thinking, is David blind? Does he not see the nine-foot guy with the ten-foot pole? I already mentioned his armor. Leaving aside the difference in the size of the armor, only two people in the Israeli army really had equipment like that. That was Saul and Jonathan. The armor and weaponry of the Israelites were mostly Bronze Age technology, um, but Saul and Jonathan had Iron Age technological weapons, as did Goliath. And the difference and the advantage it gave the Philistines was a little bit like maybe the difference between muskets and modern semi-automatic rifles. They, they use the same technology. It's bullets and, and gunpowder. But um, the modern semi-automatic rifle is much more um, efficient. It goes, fires faster. It uh, is much more reliable and uh, much more likely to kill you than a musket. Same technology, but better, basically. Same type of technology, but better. So once David volunteered to fight the giant, Saul was like, well, I got to give you the tech. I got to give you, you know, at least so that you equal him. Here's my armor. And David ultimately rejected it, of course, for for three reasons. First, it didn't fit him. Remember, again, Saul was a big guy. And then secondly, it's not David's style. He had fought for his life before against lions and bears, as he said, and he didn't use armor when he did that. And then thirdly, David didn't believe that he needed any advantage. He didn't believe he was at a disadvantage. He rejected the armor for much the same reason as he was willing to fight in the first place. The weaponry didn't matter. What mattered was that God was on his side. He says to Saul, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armor or the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So in David's eyes, it wasn't a boy against a giant, a teenager against a giant. It was an arrogant giant against the creator of the universe. All David had to do was give God a chance to strike Goliath down. That's what he's thinking. It didn't matter to him what the weapons or the armor or any of that stuff. And using a sling wasn't like a surprise tactic for David. It was just a tool that was most handy and familiar to him. The real weapon in David's eyes was the power of God. And I'll read this again. I read it to you earlier, but then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defied. And of course, the outcome made history. David killed Goliath with a stone slung to the skull, and he completed the job for certain by cutting off the giant's head with his own sword. And before that, though, David predicted what would happen, and he predicted why. This whole assembly will know that it is not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. 
David says, everyone will see and know what's going on here, that it is the Lord who is fighting for us, that it is the Lord who brings the victory. I don't care that I've only got a sling and a stick. That doesn't matter. So David actually ran towards the giant during the battle, but I don't think he was stupid. And though he was brave, I don't think it was primarily bravery. He had the confident faith that the Lord was fighting the battle for him. And the Lord used what David had, which was a sling. And in his encounters with the, the lion and the bear, it doesn't say this, but I think probably what happened is something similar where he probably slung a stone at the lion and at the bear and stunned them and then went and took the, the lamb out of their mouth and then maybe the lion started to wake up or whatever and he clubbed it to death. But it started with a sling and then he ended it with, with a club. And he did a similar thing. He, he felt that if the Lord would protect him in that situation, why wouldn't he protect him against Goliath? So he whips the stone at Goliath. He scores a hit right in the forehead where the helmet didn't protect him. And then he finished him off with his own sword and by decapitating him. And of course, that created a tremendous out uproar. The battle was joined. The Israelites chased the Philistines uh, and slaughtered them all the way back to the gates of their nearest walled city. So let's stop for a minute and think about what the Lord would say to us through this scripture. And, you know, the obvious one is this. Are you facing some kind of a big, scary obstacle in your life right now? Are you facing some kind of a giant? Is there some place you feel like the odds are stacked against you? You're trying to do what God wants you to do, but it doesn't look like it's likely to happen. I think one of the things this text can do is to help us to see our battles from God's perspective. Now, there are times, of course, we try to fight battles that aren't God's. That's a whole separate issue, right? If we're, we're going off on our own way and then saying, hey, God, come on and help me, rather than trying to do what God wants and then encountering an obstacle. Uh, but, but there are times we're walking in faith, we're letting Jesus live in us and through us as best as we can, and sometimes we encounter big, scary obstacles in front of us. But those are battles we can count on Him to fight and we don't need any special equipment. We can just grab whatever's most handy and most comfortable, like David did, and let the Lord do the fighting. And there's a related truth here as well. God will use you. He will use the unique person that he made you to be to do what he wants to do through you. David, you know, others pressed David to take on Saul's armor. And everyone thought that that was how he should fight. But David said, no, I don't need that. All I need is the Lord. David was fine being who God made him to be. So when it comes to rise to the challenge, you don't need anything special. You don't need extra protection, extra equipment. And you don't need to be somebody different from who you are. You can be who God has made you to be and rise to face the challenge. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to advice. You know, that, that's not the lesson here. Uh, but it's okay to approach the challenges that you have as the person that God made you to be. You don't, for instance, you don't have to pray like somebody else. You know, maybe you know somebody who's a prayer warrior and you think, oh, I need to pray more like, like you know, Cindy. You don't need to pray more like Cindy. You need to pray more like you. You don't have to, you know, look like every other good Christian looks. 
uh, or sound the way other Christians sound when you face your battles. But do listen to the Lord and do what he tells you to do. The other thing, big thing, of course, here is do you realize, like David, that our real battles are not against flesh and blood? Our real conflicts are in the spiritual realm. Now, David actually had to fight a flesh and blood battle, a flesh and blood giant. But even then, he recognized it was primarily a spiritual battle, it was primarily about what was happening spiritually. So we have to face different trials and difficulties of all sorts, but it's good to remember, and, and I mean real things, you know, like bills to pay and health things to overcome and relationships that are difficult. Those are real flesh and blood things, but it is good to remember that primarily it's about what's going on spiritually. There's a spiritual reality behind it all. Again, you know, the bills and the relationships and all that, that that's, that's real, that's flesh and blood, but there's something else that goes along with that. There's a battle of discouragement or hopelessness or a battle to actually love somebody who is not being lovable or the challenge to trust God as your provider. We do have to deal with the flesh and blood stuff. We have to decide what we're going to say. We have to decide how we're going to pay this bill or deal with this bill or deal with this person. But we need to remember there is something going on spiritually as well. And we have the God of the universe behind us. Maybe you have to deal with someone in your life that's difficult or troublesome or causes you anguish. Obviously, that's a flesh and blood kind of a situation. But the real battle is to trust God, to continually allow God's power to forgive that person through you, to recognize that the devil wants you to not forgive and to hold on to things. Recognize that spiritual battle. And this isn't a blank check to say, okay, God will do whatever I want him as long as I do it in his name. But there is an invitation here to see the spiritual reality behind our physical life and to trust God to do good things in us and through us. So again, where are you intimidated right now? What kind of giant are you facing? Could it be relationship, a decision, finances, health, career, a particular person? Does it look like all the advantages belong to the other side? All the odds are stacked against you. They were all stacked against David too. Hear the Lord's invitation to trust him right now. Now, even though it wasn't written until a thousand years after the time of David, I think David knew the truth. Intuitively, he knew the truth of what it says in Romans chapter 8. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What then shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? David knew that. Oh, David knew that. Reading on, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares to accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. 
who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Recently, my, my dad passed away, and uh, somebody said something like, um, oh, we got, we got somebody in heaven right now then who can you know, put in a good word for us. And I, I understand that sentiment, but the reality is we have somebody much better than my dad. We have somebody who is <laughs> Jesus Christ himself pleading for us, praying for us, putting in a good word for us. If he's for us, who can be against us? If he declares us not guilty, who can declare us guilty? Let's trust him right now. Listen for what he might be saying to you. Lord, thank you for your amazing promises. Thank you that because you are for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. It doesn't matter if we're facing a giant. Help us to hear your invitation to trust you. Help us to, in fact, trust you. We need your Holy Spirit to empower us to trust you, and we ask for that, and we receive it in Jesus' name. Amen.